Hello, everyone. Welcome to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. It's good to be back with you today on the podcast. We are in the middle of a uh, somewhat extensive, lengthy discussion on substance-related and addictive disorders. And uh, if you've been able to uh, listen to any of the prior podcasts or would like to go back and uh, listen to them after this uh, podcast, uh, this episode, uh, that would be great too. But we have been discussing opiates and opioid use disorder in particularly. That was in the context of uh, statistics that seemed to indicate that uh, the United States of America, due to a national survey, uh, presented with at least 19.7 million adults, that would be 12 years or older, uh, having had or having a substance-related disorder in the year of 2017. Uh, that's a couple, three years old by now, and so I suspect that that figure has probably not dropped dramatically. Uh, if anything, might have leveled, but could also possibly have increased somewhat. Uh, with that, too, though, we identified the most addictive substances. The number one on the list was heroin, uh, which is an opiate. Uh, there was number two on the list, cocaine. Three was nicotine. Uh, and then at the bottom of the list was, uh, at least the top ten of the list, was in the tenth spot, marijuana or cannabis. Uh, why we decided to begin with opiates, uh, heroin uh, as an opiate, is, of course, again, because it is not only the most addictive, but probably in that it's the one that's most commonly at this particular moment in time being used uh, and deserves, rightfully so then, uh, our at least primary attention. Uh, what we've done, though, as much as we've talked about opiates, we've talked about in a more general sort of way what it is to have a substance-related and addictive disorder. And even though uh, opiates has been the uh, subject, the template for that uh, abuse and dependence, or again, what we call, according to the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, a substance-related and addictive disorder, uh, is the same for all of these particular substances and, that, for that matter, any other category of substance uh, that we might discuss. There is a pattern of abuse, and then with that, if you can't stop using it in the face of the abuse, then you're also, or the problems that are associated with the abuse, then you're also most likely dependent. And dependency uh, then is nothing more than a sustained state of misuse and abuse. Uh, the complications, as much as the disorder and disease, uh, becomes uh, progressively worse and worse over time. And ultimately, uh, not all of the substances that could be either abused or one could become addicted to are necessarily going to result uh, in some sort of direct way in one's death. Uh, there are complications uh, that certainly have lethality attached to it, uh, but in particular, there is no way out of it uh, except to go down that road that eventually in the end results in the uh, probably the total, the uh, utter destruction of oneself, death, uh, when it comes to opioids. Uh, we've gone through, again, all the uh, diagnostic criterion, and I'm not going to review those, uh, all the criterion. Uh, again, I would encourage you to go back and listen to uh, prior episodes of the podcast in order to uh, maybe catch that if you've missed that. But what I would like to do today, though, is as much I promised at our, on our last uh, podcast that we would be talking about the American Society of Addiction Medicine's levels of care, recommended levels of care, uh, what the criterion were for those, so how you would know what treatment is the most effective or the appropriate treatment, all part of not only a good diagnostic workup, but all good diagnoses should lead to the best of treatment recommendations. And uh, you combine the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual to make the diagnosis, with the American Society of Addiction Medicine's uh, diagnostic, or not diagnostic, but level of care criterion, and you've got both of those primary components. You have a good diagnosis, and then you have sound research, empirically based recommendations. Uh, what works best? What level of care is most necessary? 
but I promise we get into those today, but we still might, but I don't know that we're going to get into them initially. There's a couple other things I wanted to go uh, through uh, or to discuss before we actually got into uh, those ASAM criterion. Uh, I did want to take a look at what opioid intoxication actually looks like. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure anyone who's been around it, anybody who's been exposed to somebody who's using an opiate would already know what that is. Uh, and certainly if you've used one yourself, uh, even if you've not abused it as much as it would be prescribed, you know basically what happens, uh, what your body does in reaction to having an opiate in your system. But I'm going to go over that just for the sake of uh, thoroughness. Uh, opioid intoxication, which really kind of implies, I should say this, this is important. Uh, if you're using it properly, <laughs> you probably shouldn't become intoxicated. Although you may have some side effects on the front end of that uh, when you initiate uh, the use of an opioid, uh, and possibly there may be other times when in conjunction or combination with some other things that are going on, you might feel somewhat intoxicated, uh, depending on if you've taken other drugs that have, a, again, a potentiating effect, would be an agonist, as we discussed in our last uh, podcast uh, also, possibly just on your general physiological state, where you are, if you're sick or not sick, et cetera, et cetera. There's just a lot of factors or variables that could result in some sensation of intoxication. But generally speaking, if you're taking it as prescribed, you should not become intoxicated. But here's what it looks like to become intoxicated. Of course, there is the need to use an opiate in order at least to have opioid intoxication. With that, there are also clinically significant problematic behaviors or psychological changes. And examples of what a psychological change might be that's associated with the use of the opiate would be euphoria with some apathy or indifference that follows it over the course of, of one's use of the substance. There's stages. Uh, again, on the front end, this is what the drug results in. But as it's working its way through your system and eventually uh, becoming uh, um, excreted or uh, removed from your system, uh, you're going to have some of these other stages that's associated with that particular episode of drug use, the opioid use. But you'll have euphoria on the front end. You'll go through a stage of apathy, eventual dysphoria. You'll then experience psychomotor agitation, retardation, followed by impaired judgment. Now, again, this could correlate with not only the levels of the substance in your system, uh, the half-life, as they say, or the length of time that it remains in your system or for your body to remove it from your system through the normal channels of, again, excretion, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, um, it probably could also speak to Again, that transition from abuse to dependence because it does have some flavor of not only physiological tolerance that gets established and developed, but we know when there's physiological tolerance, there's also going to be withdrawal. And even as much as it is episode by episode, when you talk about intoxication, hopefully you're not intoxicated uh, around the clock, although I'm sure that some might want to attempt to get to that point where they could do that. Uh, nonetheless, we would look at that episode uh, based on the amounts of substance between uh, dosing, I suppose you could call it. Uh, you take some and then you don't for a while, and then you take another uh, pill, opiate, a dose, uh, but it kind of parallels it, particularly when it gets to the point of uh, uh, not only the impaired judgment, but the psychomotor agitation uh, and or retardation. Because, again, coming off of it, you're going to have an opposite reaction to what the actual substance uh, does or how it affects your body in a primary sort of way. Uh, again, homeostasis being that uh, physically your body has an optimal level of functioning uh, everything biochemically is sort of pre-established with balance in mind. Uh, we call that normal. But when you introduce a substance that somehow affects then your uh, energy levels, that balance of all that biochemistry, it can also affect your mood, your, your bodily functioning, you're going to have these uh, mood swings or at least these states of excitation or depression uh, that goes along with it, and we call it psychomotor agitation or retardation. 
that goes along with it. But it's all part of that whole complex. So within each episode, you're going to get a bit of that, but certainly you're going to get a bit of that over the whole entire course of your use of a substance. And if it does, as we're speaking of on the podcast, turn out to be a substance-related and addictive disorder, it's going to be the duration of the time not only that you've taken it, but also the recovery time after you have otherwise had the diagnosis, uh, met criterion for the diagnosis, and now are trying to uh, receive treatment, to overcome it, to restore your body to some uh, level or, or state of normalcy. So, having said all of that, then during or shortly after the use of an opiate, you're going to have these problematic behaviors or psychological changes when you are actually intoxicated. Your pupils are going to become constricted or dilation due to uh, other conditions such as a severe overdose. You have one or more of the following uh, symptoms that accompany that. You'll have drowsiness, possibly dependent upon how much you've taken. You could go into a coma. That's the lethality, or at least the earliest stages of the possible overdose uh, and the death that, that uh, oftentimes can accompany that. Your speech will become slurred. You'll have attention problems, memory problems that go along with that. The signs and the symptoms aren't attributable, of course, to any other medical condition and not better explained by another mental disorder. We discussed that in previous podcasts, particularly the last one. You need to have a good differential diagnosis. Uh, but this is all due to what we're reading right now or going over right now to the effects, the intoxicating effects of the opiate. Uh, if there are perceptual dis uh, disturbances, uh, are, uh, would include... Uh, hallucinations, uh, auditory, visual, tactile illusions, these could occur with the use of an opioid. Uh, and as much as, again, that is what it is to be intoxicated, you should only be intoxicated when you're under the influence of the substance. Uh, it should not necessarily become a defining aspect to your normal uh, existence or your day-to-day -day sort of function, except that you would be taking the drug to the point of such excess that you really have no chance to return to any state of normal. And of course, as you might imagine, in terms of progression, that would be pretty far down that course or that uh, sort of direction uh, from abuse all the way to dependence, and uh, with that, uh, the progressive aspect of the disorder. There is also then, as we've been discussing opioid withdrawal, and though I've spoken of it in more general, generic terms, uh, the opposite action or reaction to uh, one's use of an opiate, what opiates cause, withdrawal, uh, is actually the uh, opposite effect. But I'm going to read more specifically. With opiate withdrawal, there is a, uh, either a cessation of the opiate that has been heavy and prolonged up to that point, several weeks or longer, reduction in the opiate uh, that you're taking or that you can get or that your body has, uh, that you've put in your body. Uh, and then also, you can have administration of an opioid antagonist after a period opioid use, which would again get back to that idea of naloxone. Uh, we spoke about that and the uh, withdrawal effects again in our last podcast. Uh, three or more of the following develop within minutes to several days after either stopping or reducing the use of the opiate or the uh, administration of an antagonist. I called it a protagonist last episode, I believe, so I apologize for that. Uh, three of the following develop within minutes to several days. Dysphoric mood, nausea or vomiting, muscle aches, pupillary dilation, diarrhea, yawning, fever, insomnia. Uh, the signs or symptoms uh, causing significant distress or impairment in social and occupational functioning uh, or in other important areas of functioning are associated or company. Uh, the signs and symptoms cannot be attributed to another medical condition or better explained by another mental disorder, uh, including intoxication or withdrawal from another substance. So, as much as, again, that's what withdrawal looks like, then as we've discussed all this up to this point, 
when someone comes in, we can, again, in a more broader sort of context, make a diagnosis of substance-related or addictive disorders, but as the person making the diagnosis, the clinician has to also make an appraisal or an assessment of whether they are currently intoxicated or going through withdrawal. Both have implications, uh, as there may be some need for additional assistance, uh, addressing specifically any sort of risks that are associated with intoxication or withdrawal. And again, I think we've, discuss we've discussed those in enough detail that uh, I don't need to go over all of that again at this particular moment. Uh, and as much as, again, that kind of completes then all the diagnostic criteria in the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, by now you should know <laughs> whether you have an opioid disorder. You should also already have some idea of where you are as far as progression goes, at what stage you might be. Uh, probably those around you should already know where you are or where you lie. Uh, when it comes to uh, that continuum of start to finish uh, on uh, opiates or use of opiates or misuse of opiates or dependence upon opiates. So uh, you should have a pretty good notion. We call that insight. Uh, and, and as much as, again, insight does not always mean change, there's still other things that go into change. It does mean, though, that insight, I believe, is, is necessary to generate any sort of motive to change. Uh, you have to recognize it as a problem. Again, staying in denial, you're not going to solve any problem you can't face or will choose to not address. But once you address it, you still have to find sufficient motive. Uh, but even then, insight is very important when you start to connect, or as a clinician such as myself would begin to try to connect the consequences uh, the things that are otherwise going to happen or are happening or have happened in such a problematic, again, detrimental way as a result of the use of the substance, there is implied motive in that. Now, again, the motive might be <laughs> somewhat fear. Uh, when you tell somebody, if you don't stop, you're going to kill yourself, you would hope that that would uh, engender some degree of fear. But even if it should not engender some degree of fear, or the fear engendered is not sufficient to get them to stop because actually with an opiate, uh, then when you take that feeling away, you really remove then any motive, good motive, I should say, that might come out of that to stop. So rather than looking at just the fear aspect of it, we also like for the sake of somewhat being positive and maybe taking advantage of the more positive means to the end. And, and research seems to suggest, too, if we do this in, in the right order of things, looking at the natural reinforcing sort of values of a consequence, a natural consequence, it's more likely to endure, the change that is. So if you punish somebody, you might get a more immediate effect, but you're probably not going to get the kind of sustained change that if you can tap into some positive motive, something good that's going to come out of uh, this awareness and insight, you've got a better chance at it being self-sustainable or sustainable in general, and then I use self-sustainable. The person can keep that going as much as somebody might otherwise force them or make them do something. And actually, that's generally the problem when it comes to treatment. Most people, uh, because it takes so long for uh, an opiate, uh, someone in the throes of such a problem, uh, a substance-related uh, and addictive disorder, to come to an awareness, uh, oftentimes they, the, the folks that want to help them as they're watching them go through this, they don't have enough patience to allow the natural consequences really to have the best effect. So... Most folks that are outside of that individual and wanting to help can't resist the temptation to make the person comply. And maybe if it's a life or death, certainly. If it's a life or death situation, you have to, right? But at the same time, though, allowing that individual to recognize for themselves, come to an awareness, you can continue to encourage insight and awareness, promote it, but they have to come to the same realization because if they don't, then the likelihood is they are not going to take that initiative themselves, and thus they're not going to sustain it themselves. You're going to constantly have to be, uh, or in a position of having to make them, to do what is best, 
you'll, you'll almost have to think for them. So rather than just fear as a primary motive, consequential to this insight and awareness, we'd also want to present uh, the point out the positives. These things change when you do this. There's something good in this for you. Not focus so much on all the negatives that are bound to be there, but instead already begin to balance that out or maybe even lean it more toward, but there's a greater thing that's going to happen. And uh, it's called motivationally motivational interviewing or motivationally interviewing a patient. But based on what the patient tells you, you highlight that reinforcement. You highlight or take advantage of whatever positive motive might be there. Now, you could argue the point, and I think it's a good one, that implicitly in all of us, there's a desire for healing. There's a mechanism of healing. The body, you don't have to think about it. Many things about the body is just, again, autonomic or automatic, and the body can heal itself. However, when it comes to such a thing as choice and decision to cooperate, then there has to be somewhat of an appeal to the mind. And especially if the mind has otherwise been somewhat disobedient or rebellious against that notion of what wellness is or being healthy, uh, has rejected the best intentions and advice of the people around them, the addict that is, that's trying to help them to stay alive, then what you basically have, though, is you have a resistance. Motivational interviewing takes advantage of any positivity, anything that's implicitly beyond just the autonomic sort of reaction of the body to heal itself. It's an engagement of the brain, the mind, the will to find the motive to cooperate with that. Don't fight against it. Don't do things that we know are self-destructive. But if you can focus more upon that, then that will be sustainable not only in terms of self, the addict sustaining that effort himself or herself, but in terms of just overall the momentum, if I could describe it as that, that would be necessary to move it further and further along where there is a natural then draw toward health rather than a push toward wellness, then focusing upon the positives now becomes a template for as you follow through the entirety of the recovery, hopefully you get to a point of recovery, a cessation or stopping the use of the substance and beginning to engage in some sort of constructive phase of recovery, that's going to continue then throughout the course of either the recovery and if the recovery includes then some sort of longitudinal or lifetime dimension beyond some sort of immediate temporal or temporary solution, you're going to need that individual to change not only that thought, but to make that thought or that way of thinking part of who they are as they address themselves and the choices that are, are, are always going to be before them. And the truth of the matter is no one can be with someone else 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and make them do anything. You would have to count on that person inside of themselves having some sort of internal locus of control inside of themselves that is even more than their thoughts that taps into, again, this idea of uh, immunological function, uh, health and wellness, uh, again, the homeostatic response, all of that recovery features that are more autonomic or physiologically based. You would want to uh, tap into that in a way that coordinates the will with the body's natural inclination to that so that when they are alone, they'll be able to take care of it. They'll be able to continue it. Now, it may not be for a long period of time, on the front end especially, even as a person progresses toward recovery, overcoming the dependence, you're still probably going to need constant reinforcement and encouragement to sustain that. That's just the human nature. But again, I use the word reinforcement rather than punishment. Punishment tears down. Punishment takes away from. Punishment results in low self-esteem, further feelings of failure. Punishment results in disbelief, uh, some doubt, some uncertainty. It may result again in fatalism, giving up, 
Who cares? Doesn't work. I've tried real hard. I can't make the change. But reinforcement, where you build up self-esteem, where there is some educational or, or teaching component to empowerment, to not only empowering the will, finding the positives, uh, kind of bringing those back into or trying to uh, reseed those in, a, in an S-E-E-D sort of way back into one's conscious awareness and insight. You can do this. It's possible. I'm there to help, but you can do this. There's something inside of you. You can do this. There's a power greater inside of you than what you've been operating off of. That's the type of building up or encouragement or self-esteem that needs to, to certainly be reinforced on the front end coming out of such negativity. But at some point, the individual then begins to be able to self-sustain even on that level. They begin to think of themselves in different terms. There's a much more positive orientation to it, and they have better hope then. They can find that generate within themselves, not necessarily having to be given to them by somebody else. So as much as insight and awareness does not necessarily mean change, insight and awareness is the beginning, though, of a process of change as it would then include some of these other uh, considerations that we've just spoken of, uh, where others help, but you have to learn to, in many ways, treat yourself as well as you receive treatment. But in that same sort of way, all psychotherapy, not just pertaining to substance abuse chemical dependency, but in general, has to have that framework, that framework of not only positivity, encouragement, but also continuing to reclaim, if lost, one's degree of maturity and development, because something like substance abuse and chemical dependency can really cause you to regress and, and actually return to more primitive, uh, more elemental sort of development uh, or function uh, you need to kind of make all that back up again if you've sustained it or if you've found it and, and have in the past had some level of sustaining it. You still have to go back and reclaim it. But for those individuals who, again, by course of trauma or difficulty in their life and their development has become arrested, uh, fixated because of the, uh, the trauma or the aspect of the impact of that loss, trauma being loss, threat on their life, they've really never matured or never grown up, then what psychotherapy and counseling and psychological counseling is all about is assisting the person in continuing to proceed along that developmental course. Whether it is the formation or reclamation or formation of identity, it's also a want and desire in some positive context, self-appreciation in a healthy sort of way, a wellness-oriented sort of way, as to once again not harm oneself, to become better at managing and taking care of oneself in that same regard of wellness, and then allowing others to do that, and then also, as one continues to re mature, to be able to do that for others. And as I get there, then that's the basis of most recovery programs, at least the more traditional ones when it comes to 12 steps. You start out here and you get to there. And it is in a progressive way from lesser to greater, from needing a lot of help to contributing in some sort of a balanced fashion to the people around you, reciprocal sort of relationships, helping relationships, to eventually getting to the place where you can become a sponsor. Uh, you can give what you've received because now at that point, you've made up what other, otherwise maybe had never occurred or made up in the sense of lost. Maybe you also uh, accomplish what has never occurred and you're at a much better place in your life. You know yourself. You know, you, you know how to work your program, as they call it. But when we get to that point, certainly in one's decision to enter into treatment, then that's what the basis of all treatment, all levels of care really have in mind, is to continue the progression of the developmental course, which includes emotional functioning operations, includes psychological operations, it includes in some dimension, I think, always some aspect of spiritual operations, 
But the idea is to continue to actualize all of those systems so that you're functioning on an optimal level. And when those are functioning optimally, then your relationships with other people, hopefully there will be others who are functioning at either par with you, or maybe even so as with a sponsor, helping someone just new in the program, even if they're not on par, that reciprocity can emerge. You can begin to, as the receiver of that help, at some point along the way, hopefully begin to give it. And even as you begin to give it, you begin to then not only develop, again, positive self-esteem, but there's a certain degree of confidence and faith and courage and efficacy that goes along with that. So all treatment needs to have that component attached to it. It is, again, research-based. It's scientifically sound. It follows the, what we know to be the normal course of not only cognitive development, as with uh, one psychological functioning, but also one psychosocial development. There is a need for one, two, as with Jean Piaget, uh, there is this cognitive, this formation of operational systems that need to be brought online uh, in a concerted sort of way to reach an optimal level of functioning as an adult. But along the way, or concurrent with that, there's also social development. And Eric Erickson got into all those stages of psychosocial development, which we still regard in high regard, hold in high regard even to this day. Although the markers are kind of shifting a bit due to the change in, in the nature of our society and the demands, et cetera, et cetera, I think most of us in the behavioral health field still rely upon those as primary theories sentinel to whatever work we do. We do it against or within that context of this is ultimately what we want to help assist with is the person accomplishing what we know is the end of that cognitive, emotional, cognitive, spiritual, as well as psychosocial development. So as we get into this notion of then insight, insight then assists one in determining in a positive sort of light, seeing it again in a positive context. This is the end result. You're going to be an adult. But what that means is you're going to be able to manage your life as most adults do and to do that adaptively and functionally. And with that, you will lessen your need for or you'll lessen the chances of something coming along that will cause you again to regress, get stuck, uh, especially to the extent or degree you might turn to substance misuse, uh, abuse, or dependence as a, as, a, as a way of self-medicating or addressing all the complications, the problems that ensue as a result of that, that struggle. But at the same time, though, as much as you would then otherwise uh, avoid going back, whenever something comes along, you'll have more confidence. You'll have a template for how to address it. And is that ultimately not, again, what adaptability is or what empiricism is? It's learning how to deal with life's problems. Whatever the treatment approach, whatever the program, whatever the provider it has to have this as a template or a backdrop, lest it would not be uh, uh, solid. You could treat the symptoms, but in this, we're talking about the biggest trigger. If I could go back to using those kind of substance abuse, chemical dependency sort of um, uh, phrases, uh, buzzwords, uh, as they used to say. Uh, but the trigger is that you can't uh, deal with life or you're dealing with life is not adequate. That's the biggest problem. That's what the biggest effort should be focused upon as far as treatment. The biggest part of the effort should be focused upon as far as treatment. Once we mature, assist the person in maturing, following what otherwise is the already inside of them, a pre-programmed course, a, a normalized course of human development, they're becoming much more efficacious, efficient, functional and managing life. You do that and you reduce significantly then the need for any artificial assistance, uh, such as a drug. And if you're building solid, sound, strong social relationships, then you're also receiving what we discussed in the last podcast as well, 
the ultimate of all biochemical sort of reinforcements, the ultimate high, if you want to call that, within uh, adaptive and healthy and, and wellness sort of directed ways, loving relationships with other people. You're socially connected with significant others. You receive mutual support. You get to help them as much as they get to help you. And in an ideal sort of way, wouldn't we all be better off if we were all adults? And that's why I say this isn't just related or specific to substance abuse and chemical dependency issues. It's related to all psychological, all developmental, all counseling sort of activities if they're turned toward assisting the person in accomplishing those developmental milestones, not only physiologically, but psychosocially. So, as we get ready to get into then the American Society of Addiction Medicine's levels of care, uh, keep all of that in mind. Uh, and as much as, again, this is going to make any sense, it has to be, once more, done within context that you have to have a good assessment diagnosis on the front end to be able to really know where to plug a person in or to place a person in terms of what really with these levels of care, that also is representative of the same kind of continuum. And probably the truth of the matter is there's a parallel where one is in terms of their physical and emotional development, the level of care has to also correspond. So if they're acting like a child, then the level of care is going to be much more custodial. If they're acting more like an adult, then it can become less custodial, more self-directed. And hopefully there might be a few folks out there that really could advantage from early intervention services where most of that is all placed upon the individual with minimal consultation. Or at the end, as you're maybe working your way through, even if it was very remedial, the treatment approach or the level of care really did have a lot of custodial dimension to it and was very basic. This is what you have to do. You have to do this. You can't do that. You have to be here. You have to be there. We're going to watch you and monitor you. We have to keep you in a facility so that we are sure that you're not going to go out and harm yourself. Again, I know that it may sound somewhat demeaning, but for the sake of, of practicality and seeing it uh, in, in as clear a way as possible, it's much like having a child. And the, the ways that you address that has more of a paternal, uh, a parent sort of orientation to it. But as a person then goes through recovery, then on the backside too, hopefully they're going to show evidences of more maturity, again, physiological and psychosocial functioning such that they will not need a parent. They will not need somebody to be there to tell them what to do their entire life. They will have some, again, internal locus of control that comes from a sound sense of who they are, what's best for them. They will have learned how to be empirical, how to take in facts. They will have a good model for how to evaluate, assess, analyze the data, and make good choices for themselves. They will have more self-esteem. They will have more confidence. They'll have more gratifying relationships with other people. All of that would be hallmark of not only the lesser level of care, because again, I don't need to, no one else needs to tell you if you can do it for yourself. But it's sort of inverted in that the lesser level of care for someone who has been diagnosed as having opioid dependence, they are going to not really be able to enjoy that until they actually complete, then maybe sometimes, the most restrictive levels of care. Now, how you get there, though, is that you oftentimes will assess for where you think they're at, and until they would fail that particular level of care, which basically means they continue to use the substance, that would be the basis then for moving them up to another level of care. So hopefully this is all making sense, but if it is, I'm going to cover really quickly, uh, at least for the sake of today's uh, podcast, this episode, these uh, different levels of care, American Society of Addiction Medicine, put together or done in concert or, or coordinated. They didn't work together, but the two should be. the two instruments that, that are needed, the two 
primary, the two most widely accepted, the two most solidly established uh, instruments for making a clinical decision uh, corresponding to not only is there a problem, but this is the best level of treatment at least to initiate, to start with. So, for ASAM, American Society of Addiction Medicine, the initial level or the lowest level of care would be what they call early intervention services. Uh, it does not require a prescribed number of interventions. It does not re uh, require a prescribed number of hours, a time investment necessarily. Uh, but it is basically classes, educational classes, where the person will review signs, symptoms, and risk factors. They may also include group and or family counseling. Now, again, as you might imagine, these are for individuals that are able to function independently. They're most likely then individuals who, if they have a diagnosis of a substance-related, uh, opioid-related uh, addictive disorder, as in the context of opiates, these are individuals who are in that earliest of stages, probably more misuse and abuse. But it's gotten them into sufficient trouble or difficulty that they've had to come see someone, which in and of itself implies that there's a progressive dimension already to it. And with that, we've fortunately been able to intervene early enough. That would be the great hope. That's why they call it early intervention services to preempt then the progression, the, the, what we otherwise would see as the normal course for the disorder. Not necessarily normal in terms of everyone else, but for the person who has this particular disorder. So, as much as there are educational classes, again, they look at signs and symptoms. Again, it's that inside awareness factor. Hopefully, we'll be able to encourage motivation to change without too much intervention. Um, this is mostly for, again, individuals who are not far along in terms of, of, of that uh, disease process or progression. So that's level 0.5. Level 1 would be, in that same sort of a way, outpatient-based, but it's a bit more intensive. Level 1 does have some specific criterion or recommendation for uh, amount of intervention, time as well as number. But for adults, it's fewer than nine hours per week. For teens, it's fewer than six hours a week. So it, it is a little more uh, than just the education. It also implies that we've moved from just education but we've also gotten into the use of psychological counseling or some sort of, again, psychotherapy uh, where there is some treatment intervention that needs to be applied that comes specifically from specialized training staff who are trained, uh, clinicians, I should say, who are trained, providers who are trained to do psychotherapy, psychological counseling. Uh, in many ways, it's similar to level 0.05, but it also has to include then the possibility of medical care if necessary. And with that, then it is also something where the patient may actually have some concurrent uh, or some dual diagnosis issue where there's another condition that's identifiable and that needs to be treated, that's uh, more generic behavioral health. But at the same time, it does not require any more than nine hours a week. Now, if we then find ourselves after that, or having uh, done that for a specialized, uh, specified, I should say, period of time, not finding the success that we desire or want, then what then additionally has to happen is, we have to reevaluate and reconsider. And I think, again, this is worth noting once more. It's real important to realize we start approximately where we think, and maybe that's a little bit uh, uh, gracious, if I could say that, 
or a little bit with some uh, liberty, we take some liberty to even start a little bit lesser than maybe the more, if it's, if it's choice between the two, if we're on the line, we'll probably lean a little bit more to the lesser restrictive care and the lesser restrictive intervention with this thought in mind. Not that we want failure, but we have to start somewhere, and that's the appropriate approximation, but that if we find out that that is a bad approximation, bad in the sense it was not uh, exactly enough or it did not result in the, or the, the, have the results that we wanted it to or desired it to, we then will reevaluate. So if early intervention, per se, doesn't work, where a person, uh, hypothetically, let's say someone comes in, they've gotten into enough trouble, maybe they've had a DUI, maybe there was some sort of a, what they call a reasonable suspension test at work, where someone thinks they might be intoxicated, we went over the signs of that for opiate use earlier in today's podcast, somebody notices that, then they've been given some sort of a, uh, a mandatory drug screen uh, and have come back then at that point, having used a substance, they did not report that to the company, it's not a prescribed substance, Maybe they had some sort of ache and pain from work that they did over the weekend, and maybe somebody in the family had a pain medicine, and they just said, here, take this. And of course, the individual really doesn't know what they're taking, uh, except the person who gave it to them says, you'll be okay, and it really will work. And surprise, maybe not so, it really did work. But they did not realize it was an opiate. But by the time that they are then tested on reasonable suspicion, mandated to be uh, experienced or go through a urine screen to determine if there is a, a substance uh, in their system, illicit substance in their system, or they're intoxicated at work, it comes back positive for an opiate. By that point, you're going to probably be sent to somebody, and somebody is going to have to, uh, a provider, qualified somebody, uh, such as, as myself, will have to make that determination as to whether or not this is simply abuse or where it is on that continuum from abuse to dependence and then make treatment recommendations. Many people, probably not so much, well, possibly for the opiate, if it's that innocent and it all checks out. Uh, and we would get collateral data. We'd call family members, of course, with permission We'd find out and try to determine if there's a bigger or larger pattern here than just that. But once we determine the extent of, if we come to the conclusion it was a one-time, it got them in trouble enough they had to come in for an assessment, as with this example, then we might say, well, really, after all considerations, no family history of chemical dependency, no misuse of a substance or any sort of problems with the substance up to this point in your life, it's probably just a bad mistake, we'd still probably go ahead and recommend early intervention services. That way there is, again, education. There's a, a, an insight and awareness generated as to the signs, symptoms, and risk factors. The person is sort of put on notice. That may remediate the problem. That may be all that's necessary. And Many of the individuals that I see that are in a similar situation to that example, that's what they'll say. I've learned my lesson. I'll never do this again. But at the same time, you have to, as a clinician, keep it in the back of your mind. Okay, I'm going to accept this again at face value, which I've done all the way up to this point. I've just looked at the facts. I've not tried to... Uh, be so prejudiced or subjective based on past experience. And for clinicians, past experience might include being lied to many, many, many times. But you try to, every attempt is made to, the process itself is dependent upon my remaining objective. So I just look at the facts. I look at the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual Criterion. I make an assessment of where that individual falls based on the facts. I try and attempt and do everything in my power not to be prejudiced or subjective, which is part of my training. I am a scientist, again, empirical, by training. But once I've made that assessment and I give that recommendation, 
if they should come back again with a similar problem, even if it's within a matter of several months or outside of a matter of several months, I'm still going to be aware and should I not be the one that they had seen previously, I will ask those kind of questions about, have you been in treatment before? Has this ever happened before? Have you ever had to see someone like myself before? And hopefully they will be honest. I'll also give them uh, uh, an inventory or an assessment where I ask those questions and screen for those kind of answers or at least indicators. But if they have and all of that comes out, then I'm going to say, uh-oh, I might not say that, but to myself, okay, they failed. Now, you say they, I say they. I'm not talking necessarily about the person, although it's hard to separate the person from their behaviors. But what I mean, though, is the early intervention services have failed to assist them so that they did not fail again which would be then another indicator of opioid misuse that has once more, for a second time now, resulted in their having to come in and speak to somebody such as myself. And once they come in to speak to me a second time, I'm more likely to then think, okay, where are they not only in terms of the American Psychiatrics Diagnostic uh, DSM, Statistical Manual uh, criterion for the diagnosis, but I'll also think of them in terms of the American Society of Addiction Medications level of care. And I'm going to say to myself, failure of early intervention services, which is what they had previously, means that they probably are more appropriate to the next level of care or for the next level of care. And, of course, again, that would be outpatient services. Now, depending on what the circumstances are, I could jump <laughs> because they might have gotten away with quite a few things and not had to come back in some sort of a reasonable time frame. And I might look at what they've done, and if there's certainly enough danger or risk to self or others, I might jump a level or two. But at the very least, I'm going to say we probably need to do more than what was done previously. Instead of just being taught, instead of just raising your insight and awareness, what we need to do at this point is begin to actively engage in trying to tap into, once again, positive motive, try to see where you are developmentally in terms of your physical development, your operational systems, your health and wellness, but also your psychosocial supports, to find out whether or not there are stressors, or as I mentioned in today's program, earlier in today's podcast, possible stressors to the degree that it's somewhat traumatic or traumatizing that's causing your system, your ability to adapt, to be compromised, to uh, sort of not function itself in the way that it should, that would then be preemptive of just insight and awareness, but might require some psychological counseling. I may have to sit down or someone in my position, my credential, my training and background has to sit down with you and begin to unpack it all and to do a much more deeper evaluation or analysis than just the preliminary sort of snapshot that might go along with one of those sort of insignificant all, any intervention is significant, but it's not gotten at least enough significance. It doesn't have enough significance attached to warrant more than the early intervention services. Now it does, so we've got to unpack it. We've got to look at more specifically, where's the trigger? What's causing it? Where is the failure or dysfunction in terms of your ability as an adult to process data and information? Have you ever attained it? Have you at one time had it, attained it, but then somehow progressively lost it? What substances or chemicals are you now using, maybe in addition to an opiate? They're drinking more, using more alcohol as with drinking. Maybe they're using some other substance. 
Oddly enough, though we're not going to get into it, in the area that I practice, uh, methamphetamines oftentimes, and it does make sense, logically, goes along with opiates. Because opiates, as we discussed again earlier in the podcast, can make you feel very tired and drug out and irritable. And with that, any amphetamine is going to at least compensate for that wearing of your body out where you are not functioning optimally, and it gives you enough energy to make it from day to day, moment by moment, day to day, but also for an addict or someone who's going down that path very quickly, it's not only functioning, but it's being able to then find what will really remedy, at least in an immediate sense, all of that, and that is opiates. But the methamphetamine probably tells me, if I'm evaluating again, this is something a little more. Now we've got what we call polysubstances. We've got at least two substances that are working, maybe three if you mix the alcohol into it and you get the picture, et cetera, et cetera. So this is what we do in terms of them best determining where a person should begin or initiate counseling or psychological counseling or psychotherapy. We have to, again, do a thorough assessment. If it's not a thorough assessment, if we don't use, again, research-based, evidence-based measurements, tools, instruments to obtain the data, but also interventions, treatments, psychological theory, that is sound, such as, again, the Piaget or the Erickson sort of model. Uh, Use those. Also, the interventions, such as the motivational interviewing or the dialectical behavior therapy. And we'll get into more of what all of that means maybe in a later podcast. But if we're not qualified, if we don't have the credential, if we don't have the experience, if we are not ourselves as a clinician, objective, science, research-based, then why are you seeing us? (laughs) We're not going to be able to help you. Uh, And there's many clinicians who, uh, I'm going to say this, somewhat painfully so, that get into the field or into the industry simply because they have problems with something very similar. As a matter of fact, that's maybe one of the basic criterion for being a mentor or a sponsor when it comes to uh, a 12-step program such as uh, Narcotics Anonymous, I was going to say Alcoholics Anonymous as well, is that you have had to have done it to be able to treat somebody with it. Possibly there are advantages to that. I would not uh, minimize the fact that it can be helpful, but I don't want to also minimize the fact that it can be incredibly harmful if the person is going around and seeing themselves and their issues in everybody they work with, especially if they've not themselves either maintained that place of recovery or got to that point where they are able to separate their personal from the professional, their personal issues from their role as a scientist as a a, a behavioral health provider who is, again, well-trained, educated in these empirical research evidence-based models. Because if they can't, then clearly, and again, I'm sure you're getting the point, all that gets mixed together, and it turns into a huge mess because the therapist can get as lost as the patient if they're not careful. And the patient, though they may not intentionally want the therapist to get lost, they are also not able to find their way and at times still wanting to run from facts, realities. And they can run a line, (laughs) if I can say it that way. Again, I don't want that to sound derogative. It's just part of what goes on with addictions. But we have to be, as clinicians, able to see it for what it is And not to be critical, just don't take the bait. Don't get trapped in some sort of subjective response. Know your beginning and end as a clinician so you don't mess yourself up or the patient more so by getting involved so much in the patient's 
that you lose sight of yourself. All right, so we're going to continue this discussion on the next podcast about the uh, levels of care, the American Society uh, of Addiction Medicine. Again, I am so privileged to be able to bring this uh, program to you. I believe it is so helpful. There's so much education, uh, things that I am aware of that's out there that you may not have such immediate access to. Uh, There may be some particular ways of looking at the circumstance that I have garnered over the years that I have found to be really, really important in terms of, again, outcomes, success, recovery being that uh, measure of the win or the success in this. So thank you for joining me, and I'd like to encourage you to come back. And should you know somebody that otherwise has any of these issues or a family member who might know somebody who has some uh, dependence or abuse issues, you can remind them, you can tell them that there is this podcast called Word with Dr. Michael David Clay that they can listen to. And of course, that would be the ultimate gain for all of us is that I could continue and you could continue to spread the word on this. But until we get together again on the next podcast again once more, sincerely, thank you for joining me, and uh, we'll be looking forward to speaking with you again on the next podcast.